0: Once again, welcome back to the Weekly Curio, a podcast for the curious. This week, our vote for most interesting man in the world, a New Orleans legend of a saint, a Catholic saint that only exists in my hometown. Jeff tells the story of Milford. I'll tell you about the Sutherland sisters. But as always, for over a million years, we start with our puzzle.
1: It's not too difficult, but you might get a little puzzled. You go to the store and you buy something, and this something is black when you buy it. When you take it home and use it, it's red. And then when you're done with it, it's gray. What am I talking about?
0: If you live in the United States, you've undoubtedly seen the most interesting man in the world. If you live on the internet, you've certainly seen the memes of the most interesting man in the world. And there was a Facebook meme going around, was how I discovered this, a photo of a rather grisly-looking man in a fur coat, with a rather well-heeled woman sitting behind him.
1: It's like contrast between the two. He looks like he just crawled out of the wilderness, and she looks like she came out of a cabaret.
0: And I got to tell you, a great photo. Whoever took the photo, well framed, well done. We'll we'll throw it in the show notes. And all I did was grab that and do a reverse Google search, because often my friends and family don't know what Snopes is. Yeah. So I'm always oh I practice much skepticism due to the Facebook. Yes. Turns out this guy the story they were posting on Facebook mostly correct. If you get above sixty percent on Facebook correct, I'm I'm that's very pretty impressed. Pretty good, with yeah. It. His name I don't know how to pronounce it, but Peter Freuchen, F R E U C H E N, and that's his second wife. there, Dagmar Gale, Her last hyphenated name Gale, Dagmar. Yeah. This man is six foot seven inches tall, hmm. and a remarkable gentleman. Uh, he he was a, a a traveler, a world discoverer. His first wife was an Inuit, or what we call it the Eskimo uh, Indian race up there, the Native sure. Americans of Eskimo, an Inuit woman. His second wife, the one in the photo, was an heiress to a margarine fortune.
1: Who knew there was such a thing?
0: <laughs> it was a new thing back then. Yeah. Oh, don't try butter; try this almost plastic derivative. Hmm. Uh, his his third wife, um. Was a teacher, artist, editor, expert on world cuisine, and top fashion illustrator. She illustrated wow. for Vogue, et cetera. This man, a fascinating guy. one point, he has to cut himself out of an igloo using a knife of his own feces, frozen. Um. <laughs> um okay. He was living in a cave made of his own breath. <laughs> so you build an igloo, and you breathe inside of it. And you're six foot seven. Let's start there. That's true. It's a big Already, igloo. <laughs> the world's a small place for your your kind. Now, as you respirate the walls of the igloo coat and freeze, so as the winter wears on, before you can leave, it gets smaller and smaller and smaller. Yeah. He described it as barely enough room for two normal-sized men to pass shoulder to shoulder first. It gets smaller, smaller, smaller. Eventually, he throws the stove out because he runs out of coal. Oh, no, and the good. coal was only thing keeping it at bay. Mm-hmm. By the end of it, it's essentially an ice coffin he was staying in to survive. Wow. Cuts his way out and goes home. So he was living at the end in a, in a coffin made of his own breath. He goes on a... Uh, and there's a clip of this. He goes on the $64,000 question oh, yeah, I remember that. and wins $64,000. Smart man. Remarkable, remarkable guy. And I love these. You, you see these. He was involved in the Danish resistance against Germany. In prison, sentenced to death by the Nazis, escaped and went to Sweden. Studied to be a doctor, uh, went on to be friends with Gene Harlow and Mae West. Just insane. He had a peg leg, he lost his leg to frostbite. These men used to exist. Every explorer you read about that went to the Arctic, especially these Brits, (laughs) for a while there, the English guy was the toughest son of a gun on the planet.
1: It, It says something that the Nazis sentencing you to death is not the most interesting part of your life. (laughs)
0: <laughs> and, that, and that they even the Nazis can't kill this That's guy. right, yeah. <laughs> they may take my leg, but as long as I have this blade of frozen feces, <laughs> they will never take me alive. In, in New Orleans, we're raised with the idea that we have a unique saint in hmm. uh, Our Lady of Guadalupe Church.
1: Okay.
0: And so the legend goes like this, at least part of this is true. We used to bury you in Jackson Cathedral, which is in the center of what was then the city. The city being a French military design, it's kind of a rectangle. Okay. Right at the bottom center of the rectangle, it was the cathedral. Mm-hmm. It was the center of life, the center of culture, the center of the city. Yeah. We would have your service there, your, your mass. We would then jazz funeral procession oh, yeah. through the entire city with a dead body, hmm. all the way to the back where we had the graves, the above-ground mausoleums, right. pop you into the ground. Come around the 1800s, mid 1800s. Oh, sorry, early 1800s. Excuse me. Uh, we start to suspect that dead bodies have something to do with disease. <laughs> yeah. They thought it was the the odor, the uh, fumes, mal- the aroma. Area. Yeah. Uh, and so we decide to build a funerary cathedral huh. instead of that minor basilica. We build an ancillary. It's not a big city. It doesn't need two cathedrals yeah. unless you're afraid of dead bodies. <laughs> on the very back end of what's now Rampart Street. Okay. It was the French Rampart, the, the gate, yeah. the, the, the bar- barrier between us and the wild, savage natives of Louisiana, which is now us. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there we build, uh, I think originally St. Bartholomew's, now it's called Our Lady of Guadalupe, and it, its job is just for burial. I mean, they <laughs> have mass there. It's, it's got to be an official church. The Catholics have all kinds of rules about what right. is and isn't a church. Yep. So they ordain it as a church, bless the ground, etc. But its job is not, again, there's not enough people we all still go to the cathedral for our Mass. Okay. We go there for funerals. At the time, this has changed a bit, but at the time, the, the building was surrounded on three sides by the graveyards. Ah, so it was okay. built, so, set into the graveyards. So you could pop out the back door literally as soon as you left <laughs> the church. You're touching graveyard. Find a place and put them in, above the ground in this idea. yeah. The story goes like this. That, that's built in 1826. The Catholic Church by 1826 is not new at building cathedrals. No. Here come the boxes, here come the books, here comes the Stations of the Cross, here comes the rule book, the guidebook, the priests, the nuns, the monks. They break the ground, they build the cathedral. They know what they're doing. So I keep saying cathedral. It's not. It's a church. Yeah. <laughs> cathedral's a the church. other one. It's a church. They, they build this place. They start opening up the boxes, and here come your saints. Now, you can get a random assortment of saints. There are a few that are very popular. There's a lot
1: of them. Oh, though.
0: there's, I think, over 300 at any given wow. time in history because they unsanctify some and re sanctify others and make new ones, yeah. and so it hovers around there. So no one's an expert, and this is important. So they pull up this rather nondescript-looking person, and there's no label on it. Hmm. They, they don't have the little fact sheet or FAQ or whatever is included with all the others. And since this isn't a saint that has a dragon with him, or is holding a hammer, ah, okay, something identifies him. him. Okay. Mm-hmm. So they go, Well, I don't know who this guy it could be anyone. They look on the side of the box and it says Expedite, mm, which sounds... is French for hurried up. Sure, yeah. Mm-hmm. We were this close to having a Saint Frigile <laughs> the in New Italian Orleans. One. <laughs> they think that's his name. They put Saint Expedite on the bottom of it. They put it in the church. <laughs> this goes on until the nineteen hundreds when a new priest comes in, his thing kind of being the saints. When he was in seminary, fascinated, he knew more of them than most people. He looks up, sees Saint expedite, and thinks to himself, well, that's weird, I've never even heard of this guy, and that's my thing. The saints <laughs> yeah. are my thing, that's my hobby, that's my deal. They, he asks the parishioner, he finds out the story, this is a big problem. You now have a saint that has been prayed to who isn't real, and this puts the Catholic Church oh. into a conundrum. They believe they're yeah, real, That's right, and they believe they are then speaking to you, or for you, on behalf. You talk to the saint, the saint talks to Mary, Mary talks to Jesus, Jesus talks to God. Just like your family, they don't speak to each other. you got to use some right. politics. But
1: no saint means no communication to God, so these prayers have been lost.
0: Breach of faith yeah. is the term, and they take that very— especially the Pope, that's his job, he takes it seriously. Yeah, well, yeah. He has nothing else going on that <laughs> week. So the, the historians get involved, librarians, etc. They finally just ordain him. They They make him a saint. That works. And since the chapel was built for disease, and expedite means speed it up, He's the patron saint of speedy cures and rapid recovery. <laughs> it's
1: the two things that are needed in New Orleans.
0: Very, well, particularly in the 1820s, you've <laughs> yeah. got yeah, yellow fever, yellow malaria, fever horrible, plus yeah. anything else you could get as a result when bodies start piling up in the water supply, oh, water yeah. table gets there, he goes, everything else. This story is not entirely true. <laughs> this is a legend I grew up with my entire life. That story, very funny story, very interesting story, has a nice button on it, and that's always a su- suspicious thing. Whenever life has a nice button on it, you should check in a little further. As I looked more into St. Expedite, he is one of these dubious saints, but he goes back way longer. Mm. He goes back further into Germanic history, so pre-1826, pre-clerical error. It appears that since he isn't a very well-known saint, he's a really good tableau upon which to project stories, because my hometown's not the only one with a made-up Genesis story of their version of whoever in the heck they thought <laughs> Saint Expedite was.
1: That's fascinating that you know people are praying to this, it, basically, a made-up saint. Even if there was an historic saint, that's not the one they th- were thinking of. And uh, I read somewhere that uh, Saint Expedite was actually associated with Baron Sumdi
0: of the voodoo religion. A lot of the saints were. So what happens with voodoo is it's based on African religions, which are called conscriptive. So in Africa, as your tribe takes over another tribe, Mm -hmm. you don't say, okay, my gods are your gods and your gods are gone. One of the best ways to fold your people into my people and make a mighty warrior nation is to adopt your children, your women, your language, your culture.
1: Yep, your holidays. Yes, I
0: immediately just conscribed them. Mm -hmm. It's very, very efficient. And since Africa, because of um, uh, disease... There were constant shifting alliances. There weren't Ottoman empires mm-hmm. or Roman empires sizes. It just wouldn't hold in Africa. Right. If you ever read Gu- uh, Gu- Jern- Guns and Steel... Yeah, by um, uh,
1: Diamond. Uh, oh, Gerald Diamond?
0: Yeah, yeah. It, Google that. Great yeah. book. But it explains why a, a huge dynasty wouldn't have flown in Africa for very long. So because they're constantly shifting, that conscription became more important for them, whereas obviously with Western society, we could just overrun you and eradicate your religion and rename your holiday. Yeah. When the slave trade then comes off the western coast, where conscription is the most prevalent and where intermingling of culture is, I mean, think of Morocco now. Sure. Yeah. Very intermingled Absolutely. cultures on that area. Cosmopolitan. That's where most of the slave trade comes from. Mm-hmm. So those ideals come there. When they hit Haiti, they blend with what is now Santeria. These were all very right. different religions back then, but they blend with a third. So they have their African religions. Mm-hmm. Here come the Western Europeans, mostly Christian Catholic derivatives, but that pick up a second yep. en route, get dropped off in a third foreign location mm-hmm. by a second foreign party, meet with natives there conscribing everything. Yes. So in their mind, you say, okay, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the light. Here's the blood of the blood of the Virgin Mary. Oh, great. We'll put that right here next to <laughs> yeah. our other pantheon. Now yeah. everyone's happy, right? And the monks go, mm-hmm. We do it differently.
1: Yeah, the blood of the cockerel, the blood of the... Yeah, okay. Yeah. It's not uncommon. <laughs> then that
0: moves into New Orleans and gets codified as what we'd call voodoo. Mm-hmm. And then there's a great book called Voodoo and Hoodoo. And I'll throw... I can't remember the author top of my name. Top of my head. Uh, I'll throw it in the show notes for mm-hmm. you. A little academic and dry, but a really interesting idea of how voodoo moves through the South. And by the time it gets to North and South Carolina, has become hoodoo. Oh, interesting. And it's really focused on... This is an African-American uh, professor mm-hmm. who focuses on the... Uh, black and urban ideas of how these religions would move with that cultural prism. Mm. So fascinating idea of how it influences black culture, how black culture influences it, and how the migration from slave to twilight, uh, separate but equal, Jim Crow, into free people of color zones, into fully actualized citizens during the Civil Rights Movement, and how voodoo and hoodoo follows it along the entire path, shaping each other. Great idea, and I love how much religion mixes with culture, as much as that can drive us crazy as skeptics. Sure. It's yeah. fascinating to me how much religion plays into us as people.
1: That's interesting that, that hoodoo is um, the Bermuda Triangle used to be called the Hoodoo Seas. Uh, you know, and that's a little bit north of, you know, it's, it's significantly north of Haiti. And, uh, I, you know, you can just see how that on the eastern coast of the United States, when strange things started to happen, they would come up with, oh, it's hoodoo because that is where the culture had gone at that time. Now, of course, the Bermuda Triangle is a complete fabrication. But that's another story.
0: We'll do that on a future podcast. Yeah. I would love to do a whole thing. In fact, I'll, I'll get my friends. I've got two friends who do a podcast called Blurry Photos, where they mm. just examine oh, those kinds nice. of weird things. Mm-hmm. I'll get them, and we'll uh, we'll have a debate of the the Bermuda Triangle.
1: Oh, I'd be happy to.
0: Story time mm-hmm. with Jeff Wagg.
1: So this this is a true story. We're back in 1986. It's winter break, and I am going to school at Salem College in Salem, West Virginia, where I am. A Boy Scout major. I kid you not. I was actually... You can major in Boy Scout? You could major in Boy Scouts. The degree was Youth Agency Administration. It covered Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, 4-H, YMCA, all those kind of things. Okay. And I was really into it at the time. Uh, Obviously, later on, things didn't turn out that way. But at the time, I thought that's where I wanted to be. So 17 hours from Salem, West Virginia to, ironically, Salem, Massachusetts, where I'm from. And I would take people with me. I had a car, kind of unusual in college. Um, So there's four of us. Uh, We go home for Christmas, and we're on our way back, and I'm driving through Pennsylvania. Now, if you've ever been to Port Jervis, New Jersey, uh, along 84 and 81 down that way, um, once you get there, you're at the low point, and from there, you go up this hill. It's like 5, 10 miles long. It's an amazing hill. And I had just spent the Christmas break delivering pizza in my standard shift car. Now, I was a kid. I was, I don't know, how old was I, 19? 20 maybe Uh, i didn't know how to drive very well which i didn't think then and i ended up burning out my clutch delivering pizzas but i didn't know it however halfway up this massive hill the car stops moving the rpms are up car's not going forward and i had burned out the clutch on a sunday on a holiday weekend in well as i found out later milford Pennsylvania. Well,
0: you've now burned it out completely. Yeah, at that point it was gone.
1: There was, it was a hydraulic clutch, which meant that it could not be adjusted. You couldn't even force it. It was that's it. It needed to be replaced. So, you know, I'm screwed. Uh, One of the guys in the car is on the highway. He hitches a ride with someone, goes to a payphone. Remember them? Gets a tow truck. Long story short, we end up at a hotel. We're stuck there for the night as uh, we find a mechanic who's going to work on the thing in the morning. So we're sitting around the hotel room, four of us. We don't really know each other very well. One of the people I'm with is a woman, uh, and she takes her pants off for some reason. I don't know why.
0: It's the start of every college party yes. ever? But uh, Or Porky's Three. I wasn't sure. really
1: <laughs> into this. I didn't know what was going on. And I was like, you know what, guys? I'm going to take a walk. I, I thought I saw a sign for a science center. I'm going to go check that out.
0: You are the nerdiest man ever. Yes, I am. Women I- are getting naked. <laughs> I must find a science center now. That's absolutely true. I must do
1: math next to a dinosaur. <laughs> and so this is about nine o'clock in the morning. We had just spent the night, um, and I'm out. So I'll, okay, so I, I head walking. And I find the sign. So I start walking down this road, and uh, it's in this. It's in the. The woods, I'm very quickly in the woods in the sparse housing, but I'm walking along and I I see this house on the side of the road and it looks like the house from American Gothic. You know that painting, the guy with the pitchfork? This is a very peculiar house. It has a very tall uh, gable in front. But the house is odd. Um, There's a little bit of snow on the ground, but this house has no driveway, has no walkway. It looked kind of abandoned. So I, I was just noticing it as I was walking by towards the science center and then I look up And not on the first floor or even the second floor, but at the very top of the gable, their their little window up there, I see this old woman looking out at me. It was very strange, but I didn't think anything of it. I just kept on walking. So I walk for maybe a mile, maybe two miles, and I finally get to this gate. And it says something science center. I don't remember exactly once. What? Uh, But then it said no trespassing. I thought, well... That's an odd thing to put next to a science center. I mean, you have this big sign up advertising this public place and then there's no trespassing. So I figured, well, the two signs probably aren't related. And I went past the no trespassing sign. Okay. So I walk up and I find the science center. It's this massive building. It's probably 10 or 15,000 square feet. And there's a, a nice glass front door there. And I go in and there's a desk and I can see some aquariums. But there's no people. I'm like, well, that's weird. The door was open. So I go in a little further, and I see a bunch of exhibits like I would expect. There was, uh, they were naturey things like frogs and tanks and stuff like that. And I went down a little further expecting some bigger exhibits, and I found rows and rows of beds, bunk beds. Um, and then I went a little further and found like a kitchen, like a dining hall. No people. There were no people. At this no point, one manning the desk. No, no one, one manning the desk. I had called out. This was a massive building, like a museum, with beds in it, and there were no people.
0: I, at that point, decided something. Meanwhile, was- that girl who was having sex back at the hotel is murdered <laughs> by a machete wielding <laughs> masked man. Yes, who had just left the science. Did you hear center. any piano music? Did you hear any sort of? <laughs> <laughs> it
1: was. It was a little bit like that. So I, I decided, you know, something's up. I shouldn't be here. So I start leaving. And uh, I go out the door, and I'm walking down the walkway, and this car passes me, still on kind of the driveway to the science center. And I'm like, oh, okay, I guess that was the guy, but whatever, I'm done. I'm going back to the hotel room now. Uh, And I wave at him, and he slams on his brakes, and the car's all dark windows, can't see inside it, but I see like this cigarette, like this red light. And I just keep walking, but the car just sits there. It just sits there, and I go by it, and down the lane... And then when I'm maybe 100 feet from it, it races back up to the science center. Okay, I don't know what's going on. I decide I'm going to go a little faster to get back to the hotel room because uh, I don't know if this guy's going to come after me or what. I literally have no idea what's going on. And then I decide, well, he's in a car. I might as well cut through the woods. So I cut through the woods and I go over a hill and I find... I don't know what I find. It is a very, very large basement Filled with restaurant equipment, giant stainless steel counters, walk-in freezer, all laying on their side. It looked like there had been a restaurant there that had burned down. And this is where all the junk was. But again, nowhere for cars to drive, no parking lot. It's just on the top of this hill. No idea. I, I figure at this point I've entered the twilight zone. I don't know where I am. So, to cut this a little short, I go back to the hotel room. And uh, I forget what time I said I left, but I had walked five miles and had this entire experience in half an hour. Now, I've just told that story, and that is a true story, meaning that I made up nothing. That is exactly how I remember it. There is no lying. It's also impossible. So last year, I happened to go back. I happened to be in that part of Pennsylvania, and I said, I have to go figure out what I remember was right and what wasn't. So I went back, instantly found the American Gothic house. It is there. That is real. It's now owned by a National Park Service, so it doesn't look anything the same. But it was really the Science Institute. Is, does that still exist? And I, I drove. I had a car this time. I drove up the road and found it. It is there. It was a Daystar Center. Uh, it was, it's run by a religious group, a Christian group, and it was a retreat center. But here's the thing. There's enough pieces existing now that I know that most of this experience was real. But the time thing, I still can't explain. So what this tells me is, no, I didn't experience a time warp. It's that human memories are incredibly fallible. And uh, it's just another illustration of the fact that our brains are not like VCRs. We can't rewind tape like that. We recreate these memories and these experiences, and we think they're true... They're actually not. However, if you're ever in Milford, Pennsylvania, I suggest you just keep on driving.
0: You grew up in a witch's graveyard.
1: I did, in fact. Um, So, like I mentioned... Like how
0: casually you said that. Oh, uh, actually, yes, that's true.
1: Well, didn't everyone? So, uh, (laughs) as I mentioned before, I grew up in Salem, Massachusetts. So, you know, there's the mystery. So, um... Now, but the part of Salem, Massachusetts I grew up in is called, I kid you not, Witchcraft Heights. And my elementary school was Witchcraft Heights. That's a
0: class at the Harry Potter school. That's a well, class at Hogwarts. You know, it's funny. Now that
1: Harry Potter is popular, people are looking at maps of Salem. And when they made the maps, they didn't call it Witchcraft Heights Elementary School. They simply called it Witchcraft School. So people are looking at these maps of Salem and seeing Witchcraft School. You know, and like, what's that? Holy cow. And it turns out it was just the normal elementary school for every kid in my development, this late 60s. Oh, that's
0: what they want you to think. <laughs> I never encountered A likely any witchcraft story, there. Salem.
1: <laughs> However, this whole development, Witchcraft Heights, had been named for a very specific reason. Um, this was the heights of the city. Salem, Massachusetts um, had a little bit of heights. You know, we're talking 100 feet above sea level, but it was a contrast to the rest of the area. And this is where they hanged the quote-unquote witches in the witch area. If you go to Salem now, you will see, uh, if you drive anywhere to the south part of the city, you will see this massive, massive water tank that says Salem on it, Salem Mass. Somebody painted a witch on it later. That's to keep the water pressure up in this development that I lived in. But the tank is actually built on Gallows Hill where they hanged the witches.
0: Because someone said they didn't actually burn any witches no. during the witch trial. That yeah, that's not in New England. a legend or whatever.
1: There, there were many witch hysterias in New England, the m- biggest being in Salem, which actually didn't happen in the city of Salem, it happened in the village of Salem, which then was known as South Peabody and today is known as Danvers. That's another whole story. Uh, however, after they hanged these people, they could not be buried in consecrated ground. They were witches. So they weren't buried in any churches, they were buried on the hill. So this entire development was built on this hill that was essentially a witch's graveyard. Now, we don't know where they were buried, um, you know, we, and this was 1692, and I was living there in 1977.
0: I was about uh, to say, you're very old. Yes. This was way yes, back I when I was a kid in 1692. <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so I, I can actually say that I grew up in a witch's graveyard.
0: I'm thinking of just calling this segment the Freak of the Week. Every time you ask me to pick something of interest to talk about, I go to this Sideshow History. This is a a deep well for me. So I'm like, oh, nothing really on Skeptic Magazine appealed to me this week. How about the seven Sutherland sisters? This will cross a few genres. The seven Sutherland sisters, well, at least five of them were biological sisters. We know two were adopted, and there's some evidence that more than two may have come to the family by non-traditional means. By 1882, they'd signed with P.T. Barnum as a sideshow attraction, but they started as a seven-woman singing group. Hmm. Naomi was particularly gifted. She was on the low end of the register, hmm. and for whatever reason, that was noticeable to an audience, and she was kind of the hit, the star of the group because of her low voice. I don't know if it was the depth she could get to or just a beautiful resonance to her on the lower end there. What really capped their performance was these seven young ladies on stage, they, they ranged in in ages from 18 to 36 Big when range, Barnum yeah. signed them. So shift sure. down a little bit before as they're, they're making their, their bones paying their dues. They're performing it out of a church or county fair. They, they finish their seven-part harmony, by the way. It's going to sound very odd. Wow, yeah. That's a very unusual kind of orchestration and hard to do. Yeah. They finish their choral arrangements. They then doff the cap, and this hair spills out. A combined 37 feet of human hair between them. Hair. So all of them have hair all the way down to their ankles. Uh, some, they would describe it cascading into the orchestra pit. <laughs> so I'm guessing someone was sitting on the stage or squatting on the stage maybe. Down it goes. They are remarkable for the quality of their hair as well as quantity. At a time when it was hard to grow your hair that long, and pre-bobbing your hair in the roaring 20s and 30s here, women wanted long hair.
1: So, I mean, you're showing a picture on the screen here. These are women that if they combed their hair down their front, they would be cousin it.
0: Yes, they completely covered. Wow. And so the women in the audience would go, well, I may not want it that long, but I would like long, beautiful, luscious hair sure. like that. So it was a culmination, wow, look how gorgeous it is, clap off the stage, they go. P.T. Barnum signs them as a sideshow attraction hmm. because the hair is so popular. Now they're not even singing. Right. They might sing if it's a tough crowd, but you walk past and go, wow, look at their hair. Hmm. They made their money, big time money, millions of dollars in the 1800s, millions of dollars a years, their, their, their company, let's call it, would gross off of hair care products. The Sutherland sisters' hair care, anti-dandruff control, which had cocaine in it, by the way. Ah, Cocaine is great for curing dandruff or making you not care if you have dandruff. (laughs) Uh, Various tonics and poultices. They attributed their hair growing to this foul-smelling gunk members of their family would brew. Of course. So they shift from singing act to sideshow attraction to sideshow entrepreneurship. I've worked in the past with people who would sell tchotchkes during a show. Mm-hmm. It's a common thing to sell a pitch card. Sure. In fact, I own one from Bruce Snowden. It was the fat man in the show I worked on uh, the third time I have worked on the sideshow. It's so one of my first fat men I ever worked with. Hmm. He gave me one, but he'd sell them for a dollar to the, to the Marks. Yeah. And the people who sold something made an extra 50, 75, 100 bucks a day.
1: That's pretty good.
0: It's not bad, especially when you work five, six, seven days a week. Yeah. If you sold, I worked with a guy who did a, a magic show, but his magic show was a snake oil salesman. So he wasn't trying to actually con people. That was the character he would do. But at the end, he really would sell a little souvenir bottle of rose water or something right. in a very cool-looking patent Nostrum kind of bottle he mm-hmm. designed.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Very neat. Sold it for, I think it was 2 bucks then. This is uh, 1999, maybe, nineteen huh? $2. He would make an extra $300, $400 bucks a day because he would very good show, and he wanted a little tchotchke from the guy. Yep. I've never worked with anyone who could then take that and sell it in the series. Robuck catalog no. or whatever they did, direct mail, or have people at an outlet mall. Yeah, it's an in-the-moment thing. That's insane to be making yeah. millions of dollars. Now, the Sutherland sisters and their father were rather unusual folk, and it seems that money was gasoline on the fire <laughs> of their insanity. Uh, they they become very opulent. Their Their pets, for example, have winter and summer wardrobes. Wow. When their father dies... They're upset, understandably. They were a family act; they toured sure. together. But they put his body in state, unembalmed, under a glass dome in the living room mm. for weeks, until yeah. the board of health comes and insists they do something. They build him a thirty thousand dollar mausoleum. You remember nineteenth century right. dollars here? Thirty thousand dollars. That remarkable base. The sister, or not? Probably not a base for a female. Yeah. Remarkable low end on her mm-hmm. uh, when she passes away. They spend $10,000 interring her. Now, that kind of opulence is fine if you're wealthy. It's not really an example of their insanity. But they do later wrestle with actual insanity and being committed. Uh, One of the sisters now, her body, or ashes are unclaimed. The last two go to Hollywood. There's possibly going to be a movie made about Hmm. them. It falls through. One of them dies there. To this day, according, this is according to YankeeMagazine.com, I'll put the link in show notes. According to that magazine article, still waiting on claimants to come get her ashes because the rest of the family just didn't have any more money. Let's go get her. Humans, it seems, are not the only ones to own slaves.
1: It's true, and in the ant world, slave ownership is big business. All right, maybe not business, but evolution has deemed it an essential part of many ants' lives. There are species of ants, more than one, that cannot survive without enslaving other species of ants— It's kind of an amazing thing. They are specially bred, their soldiers, to go into other ants' nests, steal their brood by the hundreds, bring them back to their own nests, and then raise them in an environment with that species' pheromones. Now, ants imprint on pheromones. You've heard the story of baby ducks. The first thing it sees is its mother, you know, mommy, you know. For ants, that's done with pheromones. So the stolen brood, gets these pheromones, and thinks it's part of this foreign alien colony, and then spends its entire life serving that colony. And the slave-owning ants have gotten so used to this that they actually can't take care of themselves. They have no ability to forage for food, for example. They just send out the slaves. That's what they do. They go get the food. It's kind of an amazing thing. And most of the the enslaved colonies, um, the adults are left alone. Not always. There are some species of slave-owning ants that will take adults. But They don't fight. When the slave-owning ants come on a raid, most of the host species will just run away. There are some species that will fight back, and then you get a whole bunch of dead ants on both sides. But, so this sounds very exotic, and, you know, wow, this must be happening in the rainforest of South America or in Africa. And it probably is. But I happen to know for a fact that it's happening in Illinois right now. Well, probably not today when it's negative (laughs) 10. I think the ants are probably sleeping. But this is an American phenomenon. These ants live in America. And uh, I learned all about this from uh, a guy by the name of Alex Wild. If you Google Google Alex Wild photography, he takes the most amazing insect photography. And uh, you have probably seen his work. If you've seen anything recently about bees or ants, he probably took the photo. So... In your backyard right now, you might have species of ants playing out this timeless drama of slaves and masters and... They're evolved for it.
0: I, I love that that they get so specialized yeah. in their evolution that they now no longer have anything other than soldier, capture ants, right. and a queen.
1: That's exactly right. They, and they've invested in that they, model. They are stuck in that model, and if their host species, uh, if they're um, you know, if the if the enslaved species somehow dies out for what, whatever reason or evolves to fight back effectively, they're done. They cannot. They literally cannot survive on their own. If you if you take the a colony and like put it in an ant farm they'll just die they you can give them food but they really won't understand the process of bringing the food back it's that's just not what they do so well, evolution, the beauty
0: and viciousness of nature
1: nature red in tooth and claw you know uh fortunately we people can learn and behave differently but for the ants i think that's the way it's always going to be
0: we hope you learned something that's this week's weekly curio podcast My name's Tom Britton. You can find out more about me and my bizarre blend of freak show and science exhibit, demonstration, live performance. All of that. All of that at freakshotel.com.
1: And I'm Jeff Wagg, curator of the College of Curiosity. And if you're curious enough, I think Google will help you find us.
0: We've got identical show notes at either website. Yes. You can find it. And honestly, about half the stuff, you can just type into your cell phone while you're listening to the it podcast is true. yourself. Until next week, we leave you finally with the answer to this week's puzzle.
1: Okay, what is it that you buy that is black when you purchase it, red when you use it, and gray when you throw it away? And in this wintertime... This may not come to mind, but in the summer at Shorewood, the answer is
0: charcoal. Okay, ah. nice. <laughs> I would not. I was look I was trying to solve it with like a nun in a newspaper. Yeah, no, Put not a jog in a blender. I, just, I got nothing. I don't know. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. Have a very curious week, you guys. See you next time.